This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Hello and welcome to another Liverpool.com podcast. I'm Dan Morgan and this week I'm joined by Liverpool.com staff writers Ollie Connolly and Joel Rabinowitz. Gentlemen, hope you're well. Coming to you from a very wet and gloomy day on Merseyside in the heart of Liverpool. Um, we're, we're going to talk about a number of things really. Um, who says the international break doesn't have any content for us to talk about? It's certainly been a, a war of attrition for us lads over the last week or so to get um, what we could out for the reader but we've, we've managed to persevere and endeavour and we've got to the point in which domestic football, club football is very nearly back. So we had a little chat this morning, the on our morning call, and I've decided to put this in as sort of an opening gambit. Um, the eternal question right now that's getting asked, but isn't getting asked, where on earth is Thiago Alcantara? <laughs> so, um, hopefully, Joel, nothing breaks this week that tells us that Thiago is... Um, good, bad or indifferent uh, mid-podcast as it did last week with Joe Gomez but where do you think or what do you think more prevalently is going on with Thiago Alcantara's situation at Liverpool right now? Starting to question whether we actually signed him at all at this point after spending all (laughs) summer obsessing about him, talking about him, writing about him every single week and then he's just disappeared off the face of the earth. No pictures, no videos, he's supposed to be doing a QA and a a couple of weeks ago which hasn't happened no updates about him being in training, which is supposed to have happened by now, I think. Um, I don't know, really. It's funny, the, the way Klopp was speaking about it after the Everton game, when he obviously had that horrific challenge by Richarlison, he was he didn't really rule him out for a specific period of time. I think he almost left it open as in he could have been involved against Ajax or Sheffield United or one of those games around then. Not definitely, but he hadn't definitively ruled him out of being back for those games. Um, and then there was a period, I think, in late October when we saw some pictures of him doing individual training at Melwood, not as part of a team, but just sort of running by himself. And all the word and from, from what you saw of attack, it was just an impact injury, really bad studs up on the knees. So it seemed like bruising, nothing kind of severe in terms of ligament damage or anything like that. So it is a strange one. Uh, I kind of had assumed I'd written a piece a couple of days ago about the midfield trio we've not seen yet this season of Thiago, Juan Adam and Henderson being Liverpool's sort of way forward over this period. And obviously Henderson's got a bit of a muscle worry at the moment from England duty and Thiago's nowhere to be seen. Um, I guess we'll see more training pictures come out later this week on Thursday once all the international guys are back. So it's possible that he was just doing individual work. Um, my kind of paranoid side is like, why are they not showing pictures of him when... They're showing pictures of Oxlade-Chamberlain, who's also on the recovery trail. Um, yeah, it is a strange one. I, I've told you some of my slightly wilder theories, which I'm not going to go into <laughs> on here. Um, but until we hear anything more from the manager, it's, it's hard to hard to know, really. Ollie, you made the point that he's, he's a player who basically had his own regime at Bayern Munich and basically followed you know, a very individualist fitness pattern. Um do we think that's the case here? I mean, we know the only the only argument I'm making in devils playing devils advocate with that is we know sort of how much Klopp demands from training, how much he needs his players to sort of yeah be on the same level and and, and same level of both physical and, and sort of togetherness um, throughout the day to day at Melrose and, and what is now Kirby. So do we think it's it's surely a case that 
Thiago might just be following his own his own path. Given just the sheer volume of injuries he's had, and most modern athletes now, although they get world class uh, healthcare and treatment, they do still have the sense that they know their body better than anyone else. And you'll have guys like you know, LeBron James spends one point five million dollars a year away from his team on his own body and physical preparation. You have guys who will work. I mean, once you get to a certain level as an athlete, you work more as partners with the medical staff and the coaching team as let's work together to get the best out of me. So maybe there's something in there where he wants to follow a specific treatment pattern. I know you raised in our morning call the concept of him not really having a, a preseason given he played in the Champions League and most Champions League clubs, at least in the Premier League, had a delayed start to the season. He wasn't afforded that luxury. So maybe they had a kind of discussion when he joined that we will delay your preseason. You essentially start with us post-international break and beyond. Um, I do, as my colleague Inspector Moss up there, you know, I'm not digging through the um, through the, the training photos. Like, and there's also the the the, the off chance that there's that he has to wear something specific in training. They don't want it photographed. That they don't want rumors and, and just sat, be asked about it a lot in terms of like ox being pictured and stuff like that. You know, there's all kinds of things that could could be going on there. I'm not so sure. Um, I think more than likely he just wants to do his own thing they've built some regime where once he's comfortable he'll integrate back into the, the side but he's more than capable and used to training on his own it's an interesting point Joel isn't it the concept of him not having a pre-season and um, knowing how sort of back ended the fixes are going to be from sort of now on in especially till March is it possible that Liverpool are playing this a bit cute are they, are they holding a the nerve with him a little bit and saying well you know if we sort of put the effort and time into sort of getting him to where we want him now, then Christmas onwards, we're hopeful that he's going to be in a place where injuries aren't a big issue with him. Um, I'm not sure. What do you think? It's possible. I wouldn't write it off as a theory. I think what would confuse me about that is that they were so ready to just chuck him in straight away. Um, he, he was the first sub off the bench at Chelsea away uh, when Henderson came off injured at half-time. And he'd, I think he'd been at the club for like two or three days at that point. He'd literally just done his unveiling. Probably had one training session, I think, a light training session and went straight into one of the biggest games of the season. Yes, it was against 10 men, but it's still Chelsea away. You don't chuck a player in like that if you don't think they're ready physically. It's a huge risk. They would have They've done all the assessments when they signed him about whether they could do that. So they obviously felt they could. And then again... When he came back from his his isolation period, obviously had the virus, and then they put him straight in for the derby. He didn't have to do that either. They could have kind of waited and bedded him in over this period um, in so-called easier games against Sheffield United or Michelland or West Ham, but they put him straight in for Everton away. So if they were now taking the stance that he needs to have an extended preseason, then yeah, that would seem to fly in the face mm-hmm. of chucking him straight into two of the biggest games in in the early stages. I mean, the worst case scenario is the is this is the Shakiri thing of last season, where they just stay silent the whole time. I think the Shakiri was so in the background because he's Shakiri and he wasn't a vital member of the first eleven, and they were doing so well that I don't think they'd be able to kind of just push it and prod it out of public view. I mean, we're doing a podcast now. You know, we would do another one in a fortnight and another one in a couple of months if this this rumbled along. But that is the the worst case scenario that we don't know about, that the injury was worse than suspected or something happened subsequently post-injury and they just want to do it away from public view. Yeah, it's very plausible. I mean, I think it's interesting, Ollie, that there's been two pieces of Mark, the staff writers, um, alluding to the fact that he could actually help massively in terms of the fullbacks and, you know, whether or not Liverpool um, are missing both Trent Alexander-Arnold and Andy Robertson on Sunday remains to be seen. Um, however, th- there has been pieces from Josh Williams and Andrew Beasley who've alluded to the fact that Thiago's ability 
um, to move the ball quicker to the front three is something that could could be massive against Leicester in that sense. I mean, you're gonna whatever's going on behind the scenes. It's imperative now that they have him at least available for selection um, in terms of. Uh, an option in how they now compensate for injuries and losses in other areas, surely? Yeah, I think you, you need one of either him or Naby Keita at his best. That, that's your two solutions. And the degree of variance on Naby Keita means that's just not a reliable solution to go in and feel confident that he's going to be at the apex of Naby Keita powers. You just need someone, as they say in the modern politics, progressive, right? Progressive passing, progressive dribbles and things like that. It's just someone who can be two lines of press at once, either by dribbling them, playing a pass, or by playing a direct ball, which is what Robertson and Trent give you at world-class levels and what Thiago has proven to be over time the best player in the world at sitting in the middle and doing one of those two things, either beat the first line and flip it outside or just drill a pass through a couple of lines of the press yourself. So they need someone who can do that. And, and uh, Jordan Henderson gives you a decent amount of that too, in fairness. Um, and I think Navigator gives you more of the on-the-move progressiveness that you that you would really want that you get from Robertson, that you get from Trent. That's kind of what you're trying to jigsaw together once you've ripped one or two of them out of the lineup. So I think it's it's about as neat and must as possible. If you're going to lose both of them, then you need, like I said, either Thiago, uh, just his regular level, or Naby to be playing a, a kind of top form. Yeah, I think I think it's, if they can get him on the pitch Sunday, Joel, it's imperative for me. I think that the sort of alien performance in terms of what we're used to with Liverpool, I don't think it's going to be a standard, you know, sort of method in which they attack in in a conventional sense. If they haven't got both fullbacks, you know, you forget that Leicester lost both their fullback options, and at the minute they've played. Well, in the last couple of games, they played the back three that consists of, you know, Justin James. Um, is it Justin James or James Justin? James Justin, that's the one. James Justin, there you go. Um, apologies to him. Um, Johnny Evans and some other guy who completely Stefana, evaded me thinking. I think. Yeah, yeah someone like that. Stefana, so, yeah. He's injured as well, for Fana now. Is he? Well, yeah, yeah, well, old Christian Fuchs. That's, oh, yeah, yeah. The legend so, that is. The legend that is who... You know, everyone thought I'd probably retired from football by now. But, you know, we often think of this as Liverpool having the world's worst problems when, you know, we we can look at the opposition and say, throw Kasper Michael into the equation who, who went off in the international break with an injury, then there's a possibility that Leicester are looking at their own team when, when the, the team she comes in on Sunday and thinking, we're not sure we fancy this. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I can't remember the last time Liverpool played a league or Champions League match of any kind of real importance without both the fullbacks at the same time. Obviously, we played several without one of them, um, but both is a completely different proposition. I'm still not entirely convinced that Robertson's actually injured. Um, we, we don't have any inside information on that. I just I have a feeling, given he played 120 minutes in, in Scotland's game against Serbia, um, which was obviously their most important one. And I think he mentioned on his post-match interview that he was feeling some tightness in his hamstring. I do wonder if Klopp was just on the phone straight away saying you're not playing him in either of these next two games. Get him back now. Um, So hopefully that is the case, um, in which case it's just a right-back question to address, which is we've talked about either either go for experience in Milner or Nico Williams, who's not been used at all really this season. Um, I, I do think you're right in terms of the midfield suddenly becomes a lot more important now. Also because of the centre-back situation, I think we all hope that it's going to be Fabinho and Matip, but Fabinho just coming back from a hamstring injury. Matip, as we know, picks up knocks every other game pretty much in the past. So I think one of the things Liverpool can do to try and compensate for all that kind of 
makeshift back four is to have as much control and experience in midfield as possible. Um, so having someone like Thiago there, I, the idea of him alongside Henderson one Alden gives me a lot of comfort at the moment. If um, in terms of defensive attributes, creativity, as Ollie says, both passing and dribbling, you've got leadership, you've got experience in abundance. Um, so I would love to see him in back in time for Leicester, but you're right to reference that as much as we're all kind of stuck in a Liverpool bubble of seemingly a new injury or illness related absence every day, our teams and particularly Leicester do have their own. Um, and even with the absence that Liverpool do have, they're still going to be able to feel what is a strong team. You're looking at a front three, which is probably going to be what Mane, Jota, Firmino. It's, it's not the worst place to be in at the moment. Yeah, I mean, just just sort of to, to move on to the fixtures slightly, Ollie. I mean, we did the collab piece, didn't we, on Monday around the next um, eight games and, and how many points, therefore, is is deemed acceptable in, in many senses for Liverpool over that time period. You know, 24 points are available in the league and the majority um, of responses on that was, was around the 20 mark, which is what I put. And I think that's... I think that's fair to be honest. Personally, I think what what will be interesting for me is sort of where Klopp and his team put the chips, and I wonder whether there's sort of big circles around games like Wolves, games like Spurs, games like Leicester, and I think what that means then is there's a good possibility you see something mad for the likes of Brighton away, really, really sort of out there. I think that what you circle is those three, and then you've got your two Champions League games where you can just do whatever you want, basically, at this point. Um, it makes the Atalanta game that bit more important, the manner of the victory, the goal difference, basically assuring yourself a qualification. You can throw everything out and then make it up on the back end if need be in the final group game. Um, I think one thing that, as Joel referenced there in terms of Leicester's injuries, that as we go through this month and we're looking at Liverpool's injury crisis, if you want to call it that, which is kind of the muscle strains and just the hamstring go, everybody's going to get some of these. You know, you're going to get to Spurs and you don't know what they're going to have because they're going for a similar amount of volume of games. Everyone is playing a silly amount unless they change this five substitutes for all them. Everybody's going to go through a spell where they get three people in the same position group go down at one time. That's just the way it's going to be this season. And Liverpool happens to have been concentrated defensively um, and happens to be concentrated over this month. I think that this Leicester game is so big because it will give you such a margin of error when you look at the other games and you have a chance against this Leicester team where once you start going through their injury record, I mean, there's no nothing worse you could lose against the Liverpool side than your two fullbacks. That's just the worst thing possible, particularly when you've moved to a back five and you're trying to hit people on the break and you're asking Wilfred and Didi, who's also out, to cover all that ground in the middle. You can only kind of defend one or two ways if your fullback's out or you let the guy in the middle cover a bunch of, of space and those two things are not there for Brendan Rodgers. So how he tries to cobble together something for this weekend is a major ask, whether it's Salah, Jota, Firmino Mane, whoever. Um, so I think there's, there's so much importance on this Leicester game, both for setting the tone and once you've got those three points on the mark and like on the board, and like you said, 20 is, is fine. I, I went very negative on my prediction, but I think 18 to 20 is absolutely fine. And you get to New Year and you're right there near the top of the table with hopefully Alex Oxley-Chamberlain back, hopefully Cater's fully fit, Thiago fully fit, Henderson, Robertson, Trent will be back. And you kind of know where you stand as you head into the January transfer window. Maybe you can find a, a defender somewhere and all of a sudden you look pretty set. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree. I think the point goal needs to be made that Leicester is huge in terms of if you can win that and maybe if you can get qualified against Atalanta on Wednesday, then that's a massive breathing space. Like, you, you look at it, there's every fixture, bottom walls, I'd say, 
up to Tottenham, which is on the 16th of December. So if you go to Brighton and it's a little bit mad, you sort of roll the dice with that. I mean, Ops willing to do that. We know he's got a bot to do that. Ajax can be a nothing game if we're qualified. Wolves at home is where, again, you'd, you'd probably say you're gearing your players who have got your marks over them to be fifth for that game. Michelin's Fulham and then Bears. I mean, it would work nicely for Liverpool if the chips fall right. Yeah, I think quietly these next two <coughs> games, back-to-back, if you view Leicester and Atalanta as a package, are, are massive. Um, because Atalanta's a, a funny one. On the face of it, Liverpool are, if not already qualified, pretty much there. They probably need one or two more points. Definitely one win does it. So on that basis, you, you always think, right, we don't, we don't need to go big in midweek to get a win. But I almost... Almost would quite like to see them do that and just get it done. They'd probably win the group, to be honest, if they beat Atalanta. And then, like you said, you have got two complete dead rubbers who you could play literally whoever you want and put all your eggs in the league basket for the next month and a bit up until a new year. Um, I think the other thing as well we've got to consider Liverpool's run here. I mean, I went, when we did our points predictions, I went quite conservative. I think I went 18 points out of 24. I think five wins and three draws or six wins and a couple of defeats. Um if you get the Leicester one out of the way first, that is on paper at the moment, other than Spurs, it is the hardest one. But the other thing as well, if you look at the table, I think Spurs are the team that all of us are looking at right now is the one who's interesting, uh, I would put it that way. I'm not fully on board of them as title challengers yet, but they are. They have got momentum. They've got two of the, the league's most informed attackers. They're scoring goals and you just feel like Mourinho in a, in a mad broken up season like this has got a bit of a formula. But I was just looking now uh, relative to us, um, Spurs' fixtures, I'll, I'll read them out over this, this next period. They've got City at home this weekend, and they've got Chelsea away, Arsenal at home, Crystal Palace away, Liverpool at Anfield, Leicester at home, and then Wolves away. More than win, other than maybe Palace away. But other than that, you, you could literally see them dropping points. They won't drop points in every game, but there's, there's five or six games that they could easily draw or lose there. So this is why I think because we've all got into a mentality over the last couple of years that we just expect Liverpool to win pretty much every game of the season. It just isn't like that this season. We've seen that already. I think even if they do kind of get close to Ollie's projection of 15 points, given the fixtures that other teams have got and the inconsistency, I'll be stunned if Liverpool weren't either top or kind of within one or two points of top by New Year. I have a theory about Spurs in that they were so bad against Everton and they were so unfit against Everton on the first game of the season. I wonder whether he's sort of banked on getting them fit through games and basically forgotten any kind of real pre-season with them, even in the short space of time that he had. And I wonder whether they're sort of reaping the benefits for that now. But with the games coming as quick as, as they are, I don't care who you are or what preparation you've had, there's going to be injuries across the board. It's just that when it's Liverpool, it's it's obviously mentioned more and highlighted more. But, you know, no one's talking about Leicester, for example. And we've already just highlighted just how sort of in the mire they are. So, yeah, with all of these, Chelsea had another one. They're going to have injuries just like we are. Um, and it'll, it'll be a fact of, of this season. It'll play a massive part. I think that Spurs game becomes so important based on I didn't realise their fixture list was that stacked over the next month yeah. in that time frame. It, it almost becomes a death shot because you can see them dropping easily three three games there quite comfortably. So if you oh, yeah. if, if you beat them at Anfield there and they're nine points behind you or, or eight points behind, I mean that's almost a wrap um, going into the new year, and you're basically looking at Chelsea and City. So it, it takes a lot more importance. I actually do think I understand what you're saying about. 
Wednesday night trying to get it done as quickly as possible. I think you could be comfortable and rotating the Atalanta game and and just um and just kind of map out the next couple of weeks more so and then you always have that Michelin game. You know, you can always bring everyone back in if you want to for that Michelin game. I know it becomes a, a risky proposition that maybe you have a weird night and it doesn't go your way and it'd be embarrassing, but you would have confidence you put the, the full 11 out there, be pretty comfortable. So I think they can, they can, what's what they have is they have options. You know, they can, they can kind of start mapping this together however they want and not having international football on the horizon for four months means that they can now sit and plan out their best case scenario for the next four months and then have alternatives based on the Champions League and based on, hey, if we get an injury here, how do we want to map things out with Nat Phillips, Matip, Reese Williams. But the key thing is they have options. Now they have time to actually pre-plan. They don't have a, a weird international break that's just going to throw up new challenges for them. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. We gave you some new content on Liverpool.com this week where we trialled um, opinion pieces from our writers and the way in which we've done it is that they follow a certain thread. So on Monday, Mark Wakefield wrote about whether Liverpool should have replaced Dayan Lovren in the summer window. He argued they should. Uh, I followed on with that yesterday in a piece about certain types of centre-backs that Liverpool will be looking to sign. So check those out if you can. But gents, I just want to touch on this this general topic. Joel, I'll start with you. Liverpool and a centre-back now seems inevitable in terms of them going and buying one. I think it shouldn't be as, as given as some people are making out in terms of you just go and get the best centre-back you can in January. And that's regardless of age, stature, attributes, wages. We know how methodical Liverpool and Michael Edwards are. They clearly had a plan for this summer with a centre-back in mind. Now, whether or not... I think the question is more whether or not they hold the breath until the summer or they try and make something happen early or they change tack completely and go for a different target. All of that feels very sort of... Yeah not on Liverpool like to be honest in its in its approach. But I'm not sure that just going to sign someone is the way in which the club will be thinking about this particular issue right now. Yeah, I mean on uh, the last summer, uh, like I, I almost feel hypocritical saying they really should have gone and got one because I if I could have chosen one more signing club to make in the summer it would have been a centre back. But I wasn't I didn't see it as a really urgent thing at that point because I know in hindsight now it looks like a real mistake, but back then you're looking at Van Dyke, who basically just didn't ever get injured. So you're seeing as him as kind of one you can rely on. Uh, Gomez was pretty injury-free last season, if I remember correctly, but I know he's had his knocks in the past or he's had serious injuries mostly in the past, but you, you kind of could rely on his fitness to a degree. You had Fabinho as cover, Massive as extra cover. A lot of the reasoning that we were all speaking about bringing Thiago in was so that you could free up Fabinho to play that role if you needed him to. And you could never legislate for losing your first two centre-backs to knee injuries as serious as Van Dijk and Gomez have had. And I know now that that's happened, it's really easy to look back at those few months and say, why didn't Liverpool kind of plan ahead and buy a centre-back? But that was just a freakish occurrence of two events that you could never have foreseen coming. So I don't think it was a huge mistake it was a risk, obviously. Um, in terms of what they do in January, I think what we know about Liverpool's recruitment is that they they tend to work kind of several windows in advance. So they will have had, all the analytics guys would have had a list of centre-backs that at some point, probably next summer, they were planning to go for ranked in order of kind of priority and suitability. I, personally, I don't, I don't even see it as a, a choice, really. I do think it is kind of a necessity they try and bring that forward. I think where what you're talking about in terms of 
whether they can do that or not and whether they compromise is is tricky so say they do have a name for example if it is Upa Meccano or Canate one of the French guys from Leipzig if they have pinpointed one of them uh, as their kind of summer target and they try and get them in January and Leipzig say no or they want 30 million extra because they know Liverpool are desperate for a centre-back then it becomes difficult because like you said Liverpool don't tend to compromise they waited another six months of Van Dijk after screwing it up first time round to go back and get him so they don't just tend to go for kind of stopgap solutions really anymore. And I think what is important about this next centre-back is it needs to be one who's going to be a regular starter, or at least at the level where they can challenge to be a regular starter for the next three, four years, not just someone who can do a job for the rest of the season because then what happens in the summer? Um, so yeah, I, in summary, I would like to see them go for whoever they were going to sign in the summer in January. Um, but I understand in terms of the complications financially, Liverpool are in such a weak bargaining position now because the whole world knows that, that it's an absolute urgent situation. So, Can you see a world, Ollie, where they go back in for Lavan, for example, or this team, this this club almost moved on from that type of sign? I mean, there's no chance they do a Colca like sign. Let's have that right. That's that's not going to happen now. Um, again, it's back to, as Joel's alluded to and as I alluded to, I'm not sure the whole Alaba profile of player is someone that they'll consider for centre-back to try and clone someone like Joe Gomez? Yeah, I think you. I think that would be an A option. It's obviously finding that the guy who's on the precipice of the, the, the peak of their career. That's number one option. And then your secondary option would probably be to that, that secondary age profile of the 27-28 right there now, the Alaba, maybe a bit more expensive than you'd like to pay. And then the C option would be the older guy who you get on the cheap um, because that club is in financial difficulty because they're not getting gate receipts or whatever whatever that is. I think, honestly, you need two. I think one is a necessity and then ideally you get a second one um, and you cobble it together from that group however you, however you want, um, whether it's the, the first and the second or the second and the third. Um, I, I just think it's mightily important to get a body. And I think what, what's different now where we need to maybe change our understanding a little bit is the methodology is different these days they're not building to something anymore so there's you can't be delaying six months 18 months for a transfer window when this the, the age group of this squad now is to win this year next year maybe the year after in terms of league title european cups with this group um yeah. you know they're going to age out and you will need the next guy through which is why this one is so important you know it's not my money so i'd be happy to pay 30 million pound premium out of mancano let's go you know let's call axa they got any money under the sofa left <laughs> let's <laughs> let's get it done this year and we'll have some nice shiny shirts taken in front of the training ground um so i i think it, it's essential and i think that they should just as a long-term business uh, investment if you have to pay a 10 million pound premium this year to defend the premier league title which is basically what you would be doing then that to me seems like a great trade-off um so i think getting the the a candidate through the door in january and we've talked about this before i think you have to have it done in december you can't even wait till till january and push the thing back towards february where your bargaining position gets less and less you put it out now we're moving our summer money to now and you do what they did with jamal lewis and they did with costas chimikas we have 45 million quid and we're paying it in you know 10 million on installments so we'll give you 15 now who wants it these are the three players we're after. Who's having it? And you put the pressure on the other clubs who are struggling financially. You know, everyone is having a difficult time with the ongoing pandemic. No one knows when they're going to have fans back. And you put the decision into their hands. This is our part of cash. These are the three guys we like. Who wants to take it? And let them bid against themselves to get it done. Ideally, at some point by mid-December, like they did with Van Dyke, like they did with Minamino, so the guy can be up and running by January. But I think one 
whichever bracket it falls into, one is essential. And if you can find the second one, be it a younger developmental player or an older guy, you can just chuck into a couple of Premier League games. I think I think that's the path. I think just to just to add to one more point on that is, I think we're almost at the point now with Matic where you, you can't. We know how good his, his quality is, but you, you can't actually depend on him as a genuine option for the rest of the season, purely on a fitness record. It's a bonus if we do have him. But all you have to do is look at a scenario within the next couple of weeks, within the next couple of months, Massett breaks down again, whether he's out for a few weeks or a few months. And you're literally left with Fabinho playing, which is out of position, but he's comfortable enough there with one of Nat Phillips or Reese Williams. And if you get to the Champions League, quarterfinals, semifinals, and Liverpool are in a, a title run-in, which we expect them to be, and you're relying on two guys. And this is not to disrespect how well they've done so far because they have stepped in brilliantly. But those two guys, to be playing in the late stages of the Champions League and in the kind of the crucial pressure point of the Premier League title race, I just think is unfair on them more than anything else. And I think you just, you've almost got to see Matip as a bonus if you do have him. Um, but I completely agree with Oli. I don't think it's kind of a, a debate, really. I think they need to get at least one and, and one very good one. I think I think it's also a question for me as well of, of what type of centre-back do we want? You know, we need to sort of strip this down into attributes. Now, there's going to be a Liverpool identity that takes shape over a certain period of time without Virgil van Dijk, and we're very much in the infancy of that. But for me, you know, I think that... What are we asking for in a centre-back? Are we asking for a centre-back who wins his one-on-ones? Well, Fabinho looks like one of the best in the league at that when he's played there. Are we asking for the centre-back who just heads the ball away from crosses from deep? Well, not Phillips. Let's just throw him in because, you know, he seems sort of 8 out of 10 dealing with winning headers. No, it's not that simple, but I think just sort of the concept of a centre-back needs to be looked into more. What What is it that Liverpool actually need right now? Because if you're saying, well, we need to replicate Van Dijk, well, that's really hard <laughs> to go out and get and it's really unfair on anyone that you bring in because you're not going to get that. You're not going to get it. And I wonder, I just wonder whether, I wonder whether this management team, A, back the information that they're giving out in each game. So whatever team they're putting out, they back the information that they're giving them is enough for them to compute, take that on board and to do the job that's being asked of them. And B, whether they just think we can cover enough attributes with what we've got pending, it doesn't get any worse. And I think that's the big question in this. If this gets worse, then they're going to have to be forced into something. And I think they'll probably own that. I think they'll probably say, yeah, we couldn't do anything else other than go and do this piece of business because we literally don't have the bodies. But I think they, they made a conscious decision in the summer not to replace their Lovren because group of players to whatever position it may be in to adapt to that and to give them what they need in 90 minutes against whoever the opposition is, whether it be Man City or you know whether it be Fulham. They, they will back players that they've got so I think it's really interesting what they do I think it's really I don't think it's as straightforward as as many are making out and that's the point I tried to make yesterday about Alaba but then we don't know we don't know what this club um, are doing behind the scenes and I think we you know as, as three would, would sort of state that we're happy with that and, and we're happy for that to be the case you know it's not for us to know and if they they want to surprise us with the centre-half equivalent of Diogo Jota then, then that's fine with me um, come January so we'll start to wind the podcast down now very slowly but I wanted to um, just touch on the the move to the academy I mean we've not written out covered really the move from Melwood I think the Liverpool Echo Blood Red do that a lot better than us in that sense we are sort of now taking the 
the the the fallout from from the move from uh, Melville to the academy and, and some of the things that we're sort of starting to now see, um, and and we just found really interesting. We talked this morning about um, the fact that Liverpool have have created a time capsule vault. Is it a vault? What what is it, Joel? Is it? It's a ski- steel case. I think they described it as okay. Uh, yeah, which has to be giant because the volume of stuff they listed and the size of the stuff they listed, like replica trophies. Yeah, yeah. This thing's got to be half taking up half of Kirby if we if we investigated how much space they're taking up. I think I think it's worth exploring. Firstly, um, the move in itself, Ollie, but but also, again, this is an example of of legacy, and it's an example of a time in history that this manager wants us all to look back on as something unique and something special. And I think the manner in which this group of people are able to to club together such a, a unique working environment is something that be one of the most underplayed but most defining aspects of this legacy in years to come. Yeah, and it, it runs along with the redevelopment of Anfield. When there's been successful periods in the past, they've been essentially false dawns, winning the European Cup and adding Mascarano and adding Alonso, and you've got Alonso and adding Fernando Torres, and you think, here we go, here's the new era. But none of the, the fundamental stuff from basically what Julio left changed all that much. It was the last revolutionary who transformed the club essentially and modernized it. And this is this is future proofing the club against a clock leaving, against an FSG leaving, against these guys who've had it at this period in time have future proofed it where they will be a world class outfit in every sense of the word for the next 10, 25 years. Um and that's that will be the legacy is that they've now vaulted themselves back to the correct level where they should have been in, in, in world football. Um and will be there now for the next the next two decades into the next the next era when we open that vault up in whatever it is 50 70 years yeah absolutely i mean it's it's also worth knowing all that the facilities and now as oxley chamberlain put it yesterday you know fitting of the champions and melwood seemed very very much a cozy place a place that was seen as a sort of home from home from the players and it developed over the years was massive you know i remember sort of I remember sort of going there in, in, in the early 90s as a child and it, was, it wasn't what it was when they left it, put it that way. Um, so, you know, the, the modernisation of Melwood shouldn't be underplayed, but this this will give everyone the sense that, you know, this is a, a facility now befitting of Liverpool Football Club. And uh, I, I really like the personal touches in it. You know, there's the sort of beach volleyball and there's, there's just the inclusion of sort of every aspect of, of every walk of life that, that has come through the pool, both in a playing sense and, and in a staffing sense. Yeah, you've seen James Milner's got his own door as well. I think it's on <laughs> the, uh, the dressing room door. Yeah, just, door just, yeah. called, just called the James Milner door, yeah. <laughs> there was all kinds of stuff in there as well, like in there, the big indoor training pitch area, the, like the, the side wall has got a big image of them, like arm in arm after the Barcelona game and... You know, you, you see the legacy of this team kind of shown within it, which is really nice as well. I think in a wider sense, what it what it shows, and Ollie's right to reference the Anfield expansion as well, but the club from where it was uh, when Klopp first arrived to what it's going to be in 2024 or, or later when he eventually leaves, off the pitch as well is going to be completely different. And I think that's something we probably don't reference enough uh, with regards to Klopp because we, co- we focus on trophies and player development and players he's brought through and players he's signed and the results and the records on the pitch but 
what we're going to see over these next few years, and this is a massive part of it, which Klopp, from, from everything you read, and sounds like he's been involved in the whole process. He was the one who kind of drove the initial project happening in the first place and has been involved in various aspects of the design, is that he, yeah, he, he's been responsible for changing changing everything, really, kind of modernising Liverpool, not just in terms of creating a brilliant team, but also laying the foundations for, that we don't want to think about it, but there is going to be a Liverpool beyond Jurgen Klopp at some point. And he's creating that platform so that when that day does eventually come, it's in the best place possible. You know, it's, it's important and it's been referenced from the beginning, Ollie, the importance of having sort of every aspect of Liverpool Football Club on the one side. Yeah. And that, that's not to say that the undermines will mix with the first team or whatever. You know, they're not going to get parents being able to go and watch the first team train if they want for 20 minutes. That's not going to happen. Obviously, we know that. But there's the concept of that's where Liverpool Football Club is away from Anfield. You know, there's not that concept of Trent Alexander-Arnold feeling like the step up to Melbourne is is huge and, you know, it's a massive make-or-break for them. It literally could be as easy as, you know, one of Klopp's early stories is, you know, he gets to see Ryan Brewster because he gets pulled from the 16s or wherever he's going playing in the 23s because he's just on the same night and they haven't got enough players. So I think sort of... Maybe I'm being a bit too, you know, flippant about that, that kind of process, but they will have all of the information that they need about the club that stretches beyond the first team. They're within the hands, and that, that's that's huge, and that's how it should be, really. Yeah, it's, it's almost amazing to think what they achieved, uh, given how much they've transformed and changed and how much he's built this in his own image. Like Joel is saying, how keen he was on having everyone on one site, how keen he was on having the indoor facility. I mean, not having an indoor facility in, in this age and then also winning a league title and Champions League trophy is, is kind of astonishing if you, if you think what kind of advantage it, it could give you. Um, so it's, yeah, I think that bringing everyone under one roof is is massive. It's massive for the concept of, of a team structure. It's massive for the idea of kind of that, that growth, that growthist belief of your jumping up one training pitch as you got the age groups and the natural succession, as you're saying, is to move into the first team. Um, and I think there's almost, it's almost, a, it's like Liverpool getting back to their perch where they should be, but doing it in almost a humble process that they went across the world. You know, Melbourne was always the place and, um, Everything in Liverpool is very insular. It's how things kind of fell apart in the first place. It's not yeah. being willing to go and look outside. And for this, they went to Spurs. There was no compunction about going to Spurs. They went to Salzburg. They said, we want to find the best of the best at every single aspect of this. Who is the best at designing kitchens? We want to speak to them. And we'll put it all into one fantasy land that is built basically in the image of Jurgen Klopp. Because as I mentioned before, Jurgen Klopp will leave the club, like Joel said, but they're indivisible now that whatever Liverpool football club is beyond him will be in the image of what Jurgen Klopp thought it should be in the same way Liverpool club Liverpool became Shankly's image and though Bob Paisley was the manager it was under the image of Bill Shankly that's how transformational a figure is and this is kind of like it actualized <laughs> whether it's Pep Linders or Steven Gerrard or you know Pep Linders the third in 70 years and his sons you know dictating play in the middle of the pitch it will be under the, the auspices of that that pitch they put up of the shankley and Klopp thing will be there once Klopp is gone that that's yeah. the level that he's achieved at this club and this is the facility to kind of show it absolutely um check out on sort of hidden vaults that we're going to place on the com starting today with joel um Check out all the that's on there. It's really good. We've got those interests of set. We've got tons of chat about centre backs and transfers and injuries and everything. For now, we'll leave it there. Um, stay.
stay with us for the weekend. We'll give you all your Leicester content too. Um, but for now, thank you very much. Thanks to Joel. Thanks to Ollie. And we'll see you all next week. You've been listening to the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.